not many weeks away from Good Friday and Easter, or the day of resurrection. And we're moving along in the Gospel of Mark. And today we hear God's word from Mark chapter 14, 32 to 42. Mark 14, verses 32 to 42. And we're going to focus on... Uh, Jesus' agony in the garden. Agony is a very powerful word. It's stronger than the word suffering. It's um, almost to the point where he staggers and then he collapses, uh, knowing that he's going to be crushed. Uh, it's that kind of uh, agony. And we're going to see, first of all, how Jesus staggers in his agony. Stagger. Staggering means he, he eventually just collapses as he prays before the Lord. And then we're going to see how Jesus perseveres in his agony, how he endures it, and finally his triumph in his agony. And it's all for your and my salvation. That's how much he loved us. That he's willing to endure that kind of cost. And as you, as you read through this, think about how terrible our sin is. It's so terrible that it cost him this kind of agony already in the garden, right? He suffered his whole life, but especially at the end. So verses 32 to 42, his prayer in the garden. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch, pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So I was reflecting on this passage. You know, two parts of this passage kept on coming forward to my mind. And it's right here in the passage too. You see, you hear of the agony of the Savior on one hand and the sleeping church on the other. As the Savior is agonizing, the church is fast asleep in the world. So sad when you see the cost of our Savior and his love for his church, and you see the response of the church 
in the form of the disciples here, right? They were the foundation of the church for the New Testament times. And you know what's so startling here is how Jesus trembles. He collapses just under the sheer prospect of his death coming to him. Reading this passage, there was a man, Martin Luther, right? The Protestant reformer. As he was reading this passage, he was moved to say, no man feared death like this man. There is no one ever in past history, even today, who feared death like this man. So that through faith in him, you don't have to fear death. He feared it. And the question is why? Why did he fear death? Why did he fear it? What's the explanation for this? And we hope to hear that in a moment. We hope to come and hear that in a moment. But for now, we see that the real point, the real theme of this passage is that Jesus agonizes all by himself, all alone in Gethsemane over the prospect of his death. And we're going to see, first of all, how he staggers. Often we talk about a drunken man staggering. He can't walk straight. This is not because he's drunken. It's because the cup of the fury of God's wrath is coming upon him. And that makes him stagger. That makes him collapse. Judas Iscariot, and having predicted the fall of the others from him, they now walk towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And they reach there. The Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane uh, is a garden. It was an olive grove. So lots of olive trees. Um, it was a real, very much a quiet spot for resting. And Gethsemane literally means, sometimes you would say, well, what does Gethsemane mean? Gethsemane means an oil press. Okay, because of, the lot, because of the many olive trees there, they also had an oil press where they would press the oils from the olives itself. So it was, a, it was like an orchard. And at the entrance, once they reached there, the first thing Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. They don't really aware what's going on. Not yet. And so eight of his disciples remain at the entrance. Remember, Judas is gone. And now he walks a little further into the garden. Who does he take with him? His closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. Okay, companions. And he shares something with them. But before he shares something with them, we're told that he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. The sense here is those words are very, very special. You don't see it too often repeated in the New Testament. But the sense here is that he began to be filled with terror and horror and anguish. And it's these emotions that just simply flood his soul. No one, I'm going to say this again, no one has ever experienced this kind of anguish ever before or ever again. No one in the world ever has. This needs to be said because this was a unique suffering of our Savior. And therefore, he understands what anybody and what everyone else goes through in their anguish. 
Let that be said. What a comfort to know that. But before he prays to the Father, what does he do? He does what a lot of people do to their their most closest companions. He shares his burden with them. And what's he say? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. How overwhelmed is it? To the point of death. And then he says, stay here. It's like a command form. Stay here and watch. Yes, no doubt, Jesus is truly divine. He's a son of God, but he's also truly human, isn't he? Truly human. Jesus knows our own frailty. He knows our own weaknesses. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The Bible says that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And he was in all points tempted as we are, though he was without sin. So yeah, Jesus is fully aware of what's going on in himself. But you know what? He's also concerned for his disciples. So often people see it as, well, Jesus needed companionship. But it's not so much more about his disciples needing, it's not so much about Jesus needing his disciples here. It's about his disciples needing him. Jesus reaches out in love to them. He's saying to them, be awake. Be alert. Be aware of all the spiritual dangers that are around you, the temptations that are coming to you. He warned them of it. He had just warned them that they would all be made to stumble because of him. They would be offended because of the cross. People don't see glory in the cross. They just see blood and suffering and death. That's the world's response. And they too would be offended by it. Of course, by faith, we see the glory in the cross. But Jesus warns them. And he knows and he already said to them that they would desert him. Even though all along Peter in his boastfulness and his arrogance says, no, I will never desert you, Lord. I will never run from you. I will never deny you. And then recall a little bit earlier. So that was Peter. Who else is there with them in the garden? James and John. Remember earlier in Mark 10, where Jesus says to James and John, he asked them, are you able to drink the cup which I drink? And James and John said to him, Yeah, we're able. His disciples are not aware. They are so not aware of the work that the Father gave him to do. They're not understanding him. They're not getting it. They're with him physically, but they're not really with him in his suffering, in his agony. They're not connecting. Perhaps his agonizing prayer, maybe that will awaken them. Maybe that will keep them awake and stir them to vigilance. Why this terror? Why this anguish? Why his agony? Is he so much in anguish because he knows that Judas is soon ready to betray him? Is it because all his disciples will desert him and forsake him? Is it because Peter will deny him? Is it because the Sanhedrin will condemn him? Is it because Pilate, the governor of Rome, will sentence him? 
or that the enemies will ridicule him? Is that why he's so much in anguish? Is it because the soldiers will condemn him and crucify him? These are all aspects of his agony, but that's not his biggest agony. There's way more to his agony. Look at verses 35 and 36. 35 and 36. Jesus goes a little further. They don't understand. The disciples don't understand. He goes a little further. About a stone. 22. So enough of a distance that they could probably hear what he was praying. And that's why it's recorded here. And we read there that he collapses on the ground. Just the sheer weight of the burden. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. There's the, Hebrew, the, the Aramaic and the Greek. So it means the same thing. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. It's something more, his anguish is something more than simply his own physical death. It's way more than that. Why this agony? Because of the cup. It's the cup which the Father has put into his hand. We use the word cup at times, I think, to describe certain experiences in our life or certain lot in life, right? Oh, this is a difficult time for me. It's a difficult hour. It's a cup that I have to drink. It can be a cup of joy, right? The Bible talks about the cup of joy. But it can also refer to adversity. And in the Old Testament, and again, really important to know the Old Testament again and again. You see it here. The importance of knowing the background to the cup. And in the Old Testament, there are references to the cup which referred to the judgment of God, the wrath of God on sinners. Give you a couple. There's a number, there's numerous references, but Psalm 75, verse 8. We read here, for example, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drink and drain down. Jeremiah 25, 15, another example. He instructs Jeremiah, the Lord instructs Jeremiah, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it, and they will drink and stagger. That's why I use the word stagger. Jesus staggers in his agony. They will stagger. Beloved in Christ, hear the Father serves the cup to his son. Drink it. Drink it. Jesus is drinking what? The cup of God's wrath. And it causes him to stagger. He collapses under its weight. And what weight is it? Your sin. My sin, the sin of the world. It's one thing to carry the burden of your own sin. But here you have the sinless one carrying, bearing the sin of the whole world. Murder, crime, lying, breaking the Sabbath, the Lord's day. Lust, 
greed, all piled on his back. It's a weight, and it crushes him. It makes him stagger. It makes us think twice to think lightly about sin. It makes us think twice about lightly about breaking the Lord's day or lying or deceiving, doesn't it? Look what it caused him. The sheer weight. It overwhelms him to the point of death. He staggers. He can't walk straight anymore. He crumbles. He falls. He staggers under this load soon to crush him. The weight of the sin of the world. If you can think you can carry 100 pounds on your back, try carrying a million pounds. Try carrying a billion pounds. That's what was on him. The weight of the sin of the world was on him. He was being made a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. If we are to be saved, if we are to be reconciled to God, what must happen? He must be willing first to be alienated from God. Jesus must be willing to die in the place of sinners. He must be willing to suffer the punishment in our place. Not just the punishment, but the punishment of hell itself in the place of sinners. I love what our canons of Dort says. His atoning work, Christ's atoning work is sufficient. It's sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Though it's efficient in his elect, those whom God has chosen to give to the Son. They will believe. But here is the, the reason. Because he did this. He must bear it all alone. Remember Peter said, I'm willing to die with you. Oh yeah? He's sleeping. Fast asleep. Christ must bear it all alone. That's why he moves away from the three disciples. They don't understand. They don't get it. They're not awake. You see here, as he bears this agony, you see here, you see here the exceeding sinfulness of your my sin. How exceedingly sinful are we? This much. Jesus staggering under its weight. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. In other words, Jesus is saying, is there any other possible way for sins to be forgiven? Any other possible way? There is no other possible way. There is no other way. There's no other way for God to accept anyone in this world except through Christ. That's the only way of salvation. Only he. Why? Because he's true God. Truly man, 100% God, 100% man. Only he is able to secure the forgiveness for you and me through what? Through his perfect life, his perfect life of obedience and through his perfect death. That is for all who believe on him. Oh, the temptation of Satan is real for Jesus. Satan was there to avoid the cross, avoid it. Ignore the cross. His struggle is real too. 
Will he obey his father completely? And yet he prays, not what I will, but what you will. You see his intense struggle with the frightful reality of God's will for his life and what it means for him to fully submit to it. Will Jesus persevere? If Jesus doesn't persevere, if Jesus gives up, there is no salvation for anyone in the world. Will Jesus obey? Will Jesus continue to bear that load? That brings us to our second point, verses 37 to 40. Will Jesus persevere in his agony? Remember in the Garden of Eden? Again, we have to look at it in light of all of Scripture, right? In the Garden of Eden, who enjoyed fellowship and communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Our first parents did, Adam and Eve. And did they persevere in their obedience and their love? No. Adam being tempted, what happened? He disobeyed. He listened to Satan. And disobedience came into the world through him. Sin came into the world, says the scriptures, and death through sin. And now in this garden, not the Garden of Eden, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ, the second Adam, endures isolation. There is no communion. There's no fellowship in the garden. He's carrying the sin of the world on his back. The father now gives the cup into his hand. How is he able to persevere with the weight of the sin of the world on his back? He's, he's truly human. How can he? Well, yes. But also, and here goes to show the importance of knowing the Heidelberg Catechism, because the Catechism also says it brings out so beautifully. How is he able to carry it? How is he able to persevere? By the power of his divinity, he bears in his humanity the weight of God's wrath so that he can earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Again, I'm going to say it again. The world can't stand the fact that this is the way of salvation. They don't like to hear the story of blood and death and sacrifice. It's just not glorious for them. And yet, the believer in Christ understands this is what he needs. Someone, a substitute. Jesus is not a martyr. Please, never think that way. People talk about martyrs. Jesus is not a martyr. He's a substitute. He's the sacrifice. He's the savior. Oh, we never hear that from any believer that Jesus is a martyr. He's not. He's a sacrifice for sins. It's the only way that we can be reconciled to God is through faith and trust in the one who bore the curse on the cross. Yes, truly God, truly human, in all points tempted as we are, in every point where we have a temptation, he was tempted as well. And yet, how does he persevere? By prayer, by praying. That's what he does. He prays. He depends on his father to give him the strength 
so that he can be fully obedient to the Father's will. Three times, right? It's such important instruction for us when we're in this, these kinds of trials. Prayer is the way. Jesus prays three times. He learned obedience. His obedience to the Father would be complete only when he fully submitted. And when would he fully submit? When he died. Words of Hebrews 5, 7, 8, and 9. There's a beautiful words which brings out the experience of Christ in Gethsemane. Hebrews 5. It says here, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. There's Gethsemane. To the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. You know, someone put it this way. His death certificate becomes my birth certificate. Right? His death certificate becomes my birth certificate through faith in him. There's such glory here. Knowing the spiritual dangers surrounding them, you might think the disciples are praying too. Are they praying? Well, if Jesus needed to pray, certainly they're praying. If Jesus needed to, they must be praying, right? Are they awake and alert? Are they praying? You turn to verse 37, 38. Fast asleep. Sleeping. See, then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Peter, actually he doesn't say Peter, he knows what he says here. He says Simon, very significant here. So see in a moment. He says, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Sleeping. This is no way to guard themselves from falling away from Jesus. No way to guard themselves from the dangers at hand and their faith to fall. Peter, remember a moment ago, he says, Lord, I'm ready to die with you. Right? You see such zeal and enthusiasm and and now he's sleeping. Notice that Jesus calls Peter by his old name, Simon. That was his former name. Simon, are you sleeping? At this point, he is not Peter. He is Simon. He has not lived up to his name, which means what? The rock. He is following his old nature. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. You know, sometimes too... We're no different in nature than the disciples, are we? Our spirit is eager to do what is right. We have good intentions. And we wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I'm ready to serve you this day and obey your commands. I'm ready to stand on guard against temptation. But yeah, but we also have to deal with our flesh, don't we? Our flesh is weak, it's frail. So easy to give in to Satan's desires. 
how much more we need to be spiritually awake and to pray. If Jesus needed strength to obey and endure by praying, how about we? We all the more. After the second and third time, drowsiness still wins over their desire. Even after Jesus repeated rebukes to them. Look again, 39 and 40. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. He felt shame. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? What about the church today? The church. It's a really important question. Is the church sleeping or awake? Is the church courageously battling the world's philosophies with the word of God? Or has it become compliant with the world around? Which is it? Which is it? Are we willing to suffer the cost of following Jesus by saying no to what the world says, where it's wrong? Are we willing to lose our jobs? Are we willing to suffer imprisonment? This past week, a pastor in Edmonton is thrown in prison. That was the cost he was willing to endure for gathering the people of God to worship. He was following God's command in prison. Not only find arrested and imprisoned. Are we willing to endure the cost? Are we sleeping or are we awake? Oh, I know it's so much easier to furnish our homes and secure a good livelihood for ourselves. That's so much easier than to fight for his kingdom. Which do you find more exciting? Oh, that the Lord would stir in us a holy courage, a holy zeal for his righteousness, a holy name for his glory, that the world may know, that the world may see that the light is against the darkness, that life is against death, and life has overcome it. The church for whom Jesus died, the church for whom he gave his life, the cost, and we're not willing to to endure any cost? Where's the church? Fast asleep, compliant, complacent. It's far easier to stroke our own lives and think the day of rest has come. It hasn't come. It hasn't. We're called to fight for Jesus. We're called to take his courage to stand for the truth of God's word. And we're called to teach our children to fight, to fight the enemy, to fight Satan, and to die if necessary for the truth. We see in our passage, trusting and obeying as Jesus' disciples doesn't come automatically to us. We need to see that. We need the mercy of Jesus, don't we? We need the grace of God to stir within us that watchfulness, that wakefulness, 
that dependence of prayer. The call to watch and pray reminds us, doesn't it, of our ongoing struggles with our own sinful nature and our weakness. Yeah, we are. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that you are weak. He knows that you are frail. He knows that about me. He knows that we're prone to sleepiness. He knows that we're prone to laziness, spiritual laziness. He knows we're prone to shrink back. He knows we're prone to comply. Jesus knows all those things. That's why he laid down his life. That's why he endured the agony. Because he knows we need that strength. We need that new life. We need to rise. And he gives that. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican from the 19th century, he says this, we in a spiritual war. We're on the enemy's ground. We must always be on guard. We must fight a daily fight, a war, a daily warfare. Our rest is not here. Our rest is where in heaven. God's call to faith and repentance is so clear in Ephesians 5. There he's speaking to the believers. Awake, you who sleep. Rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. That, you know, we can't give that to ourselves. It's something we can pray for, grow in, increase in our courage and our love and devotion to the one who gave his life for us. Jesus, again, he knows your frailty. He knows your weakness. I'm also speaking to all those who are listening on live stream. He loves you. And how do you know he loves you? He gave his life for you. Never doubt that for a minute. He's bonded to you. Trust him. And yeah, you hear these rebukes. I hear this this rebuke. But remember, he rebukes us because he loves us. And he wants us He wants us to see his glory grow and his kingdom grow in the world in which he conquered through through his death and resurrection. He rebukes us so that we may be alert and pray and not fall away. Today, you know, we live in even far richer days than the disciples did. The disciples were there when Jesus was suffering in the garden. Today, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead. He's conquered all those things to give us that life. We have his Holy Spirit who gives us that strength. We have our Bibles to see clearly. We have so much more today than even the disciples did back then. We have less excuse even. We're far richer Because we have all the resources we need to stay awake. Jesus gives that to us in his grace. But he says, but open your hands and receive. Receive him. Receive him. Oh, God is so good to us. Look at his grace in Christ Jesus on the cross. For his sleeping disciples, what does Jesus do? He continues to obey anyway. He obeys the Father to the full so that we, so sorry, so that he may awaken his church spiritually and live the new life according to his will. 
Finally, and briefly, as a brief point, you see here also his triumph. That's how much he loves us. He held on because he had us in mind. He had his people in mind. He endures. He perseveres through every difficulty in his agony, and he wins. Unlike the first Adam, he passes the test. Jesus says, 41 and 42, it is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You know, this, this, the Gethsemane struggle is over. Yes, he still has to go to the cross, but he has resolved in his own heart and soul that he will completely obey the will of God. Jesus willingly and lovingly submits to the Father in complete obedience. See here, who is he? First of all, you see his love for the Father. That's the first thing we need to see here. His love for the Father. And then we can speak about his love for us. But his love for the Father and his love for us. To be sure, the three disciples failed him. We often fail him too. But never, no, never will his love fail us. It did not fail them. It did not fail them. It's enough, he says. Okay, I'm, it's enough. Enough of the sleeping. We need to go forward. Get up. Get up now. Let's be going. Go where? Go far away as possible from the approaching soldiers? No. The very opposite. Jesus is going forward to meet those who are about to arrest him. He's going to meet them. He's going to put himself into the hands of his betrayer, Judas. In obedience to the will of the Father, Jesus surrenders his life over to wicked men for your salvation. Again, we should see this in context of all of Scripture. Rebellion in the garden brought death. And what's the result? Death reigns. Everyone dies. But submission in the Garden of Gethsemane reverses that pattern of rebellion, doesn't it? The curse is reversed. Jesus came to defeat death itself on the cross. He arose from the dead to bring life to all who repent and believe on him. And you know what? The beautiful thing, by his Spirit's work, the power of his Spirit's work in you, he gives you the strength in your intense struggle. I trust and pray that we have that. Because that's a sign of a true believer. A true believer in Jesus is one who has an intense struggle to fight against Satan and to surrender himself to Christ. Right? He gives you the strength in your intense struggle to submit to him and to obey him from the heart. Oh, how rich and how glorious he is. He not only did this for us, but he gives us everything that we need to live that kind of life that we may be awake in prayerful dependence upon the Lord. The Lord loves his church. Society doesn't love the church. 
Oh, they like to see the church closed down. The Lord loves his church. He calls his people to gather, princes and all, to worship him. His cup of suffering and agony is for all who trust in him. For them, it is a cup of what? Joy. Psalm 116, verse 13. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Amen. The Song of Gethsemane. We see that in page number 344. 344. 